you have to actually be so uniquely compelled by some particular product idea or something or business strategy or whatever that you're willing to put yourself out there and take a huge risk. Once you take away some of those management process stuff that you used to be doing, you then get to ask the question, well, like, are you an effective leader? And I think that is a very important question. Thank you for coming to Surf Soapbox, everyone. Super excited to have Philip Rosedale here, founder of Second Life. Um, Call him out here because not only did he found Second Life, but he has a lot of startups under his belt. And just wanted to know more about some of the challenges he was facing, some of the problems building Second Life, building some of the startups before, and what he's working on these days, which is pretty yeah. exciting. Uh, so with that, let's welcome Phil to Zerp Soapbox. <laughs> we're getting uh, a head start because we're actually streaming it live into virtual worlds. So all <laughs> over there, there's in Second Life, there's people that have bought TVs and they're uh, watching this stream live from reality into Second Life in the virtual world. So hey, everybody in Second Life. So that is pretty neat. I haven't been, I haven't been streamed into Second Life in in, in a little while. Yeah, it's been a little while. Yeah. So yeah. so let's uh, let's start. You know, st from the start, you grew up in uh, San Diego. San Diego, I did. And you mostly you uh, majored computer science. I did. And yeah. then what was your first first business? Ever. My first company, I started when I was uh, 17, and that company was a database software company. This was before the internet, practically speaking. Yeah. It, was, it was in 1986, so now you can figure out my age. Um, <laughs> the company was I, was, I was, I had started doing a little bit of, I was always doing software development since I was a little kid. Um, I got into doing database stuff. I was using Fox Pro, if anybody. I bet nobody here is even. Well, there's a few people here old enough to remember Fox Pro. But I was using this database programming language. Before the internet, I was networking PCs together and selling them to businesses. I actually had a system that I built for car dealerships, which strangely I had just sort of encountered randomly through a contact and realized that selling a car is actually really labor-intensive. You know, all these forms you have to fill out. So I wrote software that would calculate all the stuff you needed to calculate to sell a car and then print all the forms, actually, on an old Okie Data dot matrix printer. And that, you know, as simple as that was, it was, uh, it was very valuable because as a car dealership, you, you, know, you saved a huge amount of time and could get people so out the door. So you were in college doing this? I was, it, it was, that was when I was in high school. I started the company in high school, and then I did it all through college. And I was, so I was studying uh, physics in college, doing programming, you know, on the side and supporting the customers that I had with this uh, software. And that was before I came to San Francisco and kind of fell in love with and discovered the Internet, as we all know it today. So you just, like, ran around kind of, like, knocking on doors, asking, telling car salesmen to, uh, that you got this cool thing? You know, I did. I, I, uh, I definitely would <laughs> cold call. I'm trying to remember some of the great stories. But, yes, I, I was... I was uh, the kid who would come to your car dealership and literally walk in and say, hey, you guys don't have any computers. Would you like me to tell you, you know, I've got this thing and you could use it here. And so you did it's that. a great way to make money. And then uh, you went over to Real? Or was there any, any yeah. before then? Well, I, uh, you know, I wanted to stop and ask because I'm like stuck in the room. Every, there's a whole bunch of the, the, the Internet, Second Life, can't see everybody else. But 
Um, this is like how many how many like how many engineering engineering people people doing engineering design? Like a third. Okay, cool. Yeah. So web product. That's mostly awesome. Um, kind of wanted to tune. <laughs> who, who's, yeah, you know, who's, what's what's interesting to everybody? Um, so yeah, I uh, went from I had my little company. Yeah. I came up to San Francisco. I just got lucky, and I happened to move in right next to one of the ISPs that was coming out. That, 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 that this was literally four guys that had maybe three thousand customers that were dial-up internet subscribers. Uh, this was in nineteen ninety. Uh, Late ninety four, nineteen ninety five, and so they got gave me a what was at that time a hundred and fifteen thousand bit, hundred fifteen kilobaud serial connection to the internet, and I was just completely blown away by what I could do. And so, I, I kind of dropped everything and I started working on uh, basically anything I could think of that would you know take advantage of this unbelievable uh, concept of basically TCP/IP. You know that y you could send messages, short messages point to point to all these computers all over the world and they all spoke the same messaging language. I mean, I just was like, what can't you do with that, you know? And so I had always wanted to build a virtual world like Second Life, but I didn't think practically that in 1995 um, it was remotely feasible in terms of <coughs> being something that would actually work and a lot of people would use it. And so instead I started working on video compression because I thought that might be something that would be interesting, some way of sending video over the internet and that was in that time there were just a few early experiments around that in 94 and 95 there were some really uh, early prototypes that people had done to, to transmit video over uh, IP networks and so I started working on that problem of how to compress video and that led me to selling my very nascent product that right. I had built around that to real networks and right. so I joined real networks as an early you know, exec at, at, at Real. Real was pretty small at the time, and I was so I was the person who uh, helped develop Real Video. That was my responsibility was to make Real into something other than Real Audio. For those who know that that story, and make it into Real, real player, Video. I remember that. Well, I was, uh, just like all over the place. So yeah, you uh, you were at Real. Real was popular. Had a pretty good job. What? Why? Why did you move from Real and? Tell us actually about this, the idea that you had for Second Life when you were still... Well, in 99, I, I always thought that the general idea of building a kind of a construction kit where you just could take a, you know, a huge dark space and just build things in it digitally and essentially kind of redo the laws of physics but with digital atoms. You know, there's this great philosophical question of how would the world be different if we could build it all over again now, given that we're here, you know, now. <laughs> You know what I mean? That the, the universe has been around a long time, and its yeah. rules, so far as we know, and as a physicist, I can say this: you know, its rules aren't changing. It, it, it's got a basic set of properties that have been around here before us, so far as you know, we can tell. And how would the world be different if we rebuilt it ourselves, right? right. And you know, how would, how would you make things different? And so I, I always thought that was a like totally fascinating question. You know, I, I wanted to work on that. And then so when the internet w goes around, I was struck by the idea that you ought to be able to get a ton of computers connected together over the internet and, and, and simulate reality somehow inside those computers. So that was the dream and I was really passionate about that from like just after high school on. And uh, you know, books like Snow Crash for everybody that's read that. When that came out, I was already so into this stuff that you know, my wife, my friends were like, oh, you gotta read this Snow Crash book. This is that crazy stuff that you're, 
you're so you know nuts about. So <laughs> I, I, in 1999, though, what changed was uh, NVIDIA came out with the GeForce 2, which was this really good graphics coprocessor. Yeah. And the other thing that happened in 99, and it was really easy to see when you were working at real networks, was you knew that uh, connecting via broadband was, was going to be the only way you connected to the internet. And so with those two things being true, I thought that maybe I could leave real networks, start my own company, and build something like Second Life and get away with it. You know, do it without having to raise too much money and, you know, having to, you know, uh, just being able to make it happen. I mean, I wasn't sure, but I, I thought I was somewhat more sure than I was in 95. How are you? How how do you make sure that you're sure? I mean, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> there's so many people out there that just, you know, they have a hunch that something might work, and then, and then, uh, you know, like, how do you actually like run with it and be like, oh, I, I, met, I know, I gotta, I gotta go and do this, right? Versus like, you know, like you started this thing there, or, or there's like competitors. There was it was out there. Yeah, yeah they had started two years prior. Yeah, yeah, scary stuff, right? That was terrifying. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, how do you how do you go about kind of making sure that what's well I, I'm always asked about I, and I talk a lot about entrepreneurship and I, I think that unless you feel a tremendous personal desire to see something work as an entrepreneur you sh probably shouldn't do it I mean unless you're so nuts about the idea that you're willing to take you know what I mean it, you, yeah. I think you should be led by your willingness to lose money or your willingness to take a chance if you actually feel that way and you're that passionate about a particular idea, you, you might be the only one, which is really good. I mean, you know what I mean? You're, it might be time to try and build that thing. I know that a lot of entrepreneurs, especially here in Silicon Valley where I did not grow up, kind of come at this with the idea that that's just what life is here. You're an entrepreneur, <laughs> right? You know, people... <laughs> you know, people are bankers in other, in other cities, you know, and here you're, you're an entrepreneur. You have yeah. to, and, that, and that's like a job. It's not a job, though. You know, it's just not a job. I mean, it, you almost always fail doing it. So it's not a very sensible job um, or a career. It, you know, entrepreneur is not a sensible career. It, it, you have to actually be so uh, uniquely compelled by some particular product idea or something or business strategy or whatever that you're willing to put yourself out there and take a huge uh, risk in, in terms of, you know, your self-image, your money that you invest in it and everything else to, to do it. I, I think that's really the checkpoint. I, it, it, actually, I think it's pretty easy. Like, if you just used that one rule, you wouldn't, people wouldn't do a lot of things, and that would probably be good. You know, they, they wouldn't do a lot of things that are, that are destined to fail. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, we, we talked a little bit in your write-up about this. You know, my, uh, my apologies to if I, you know, miss... Uh, Articulated this to people in Second Life, um, you know, in the masthead for this get together, we talked about Second Life being unfundable. What did I mean by that? Yeah. Um, what I meant by that was that, not that it wasn't a good idea. I thought that Second Life, you know, was then, is now, will be in the future one of the most important transformative changes that we make as a human, you know, culture to to essentially kind of start digitizing the physical world around us, quite literally. I, th I thought that was a huge idea. But when I say that it was unfundable, what I mean is that, and I think this is a really interesting conversation in general about entrepreneurship, there are certain types of ideas that involve making something completely new where you have no idea whether or not it might be compelling to people, 
or, there, or, or it might have utility sufficient to justify its cost. And those types of startup, si startup ideas fall into a certain category. And you've got to really think about whether in your, in your efforts as an entrepreneur you're, you're in that category or not. And that category is the kind of unfundable category. And what I mean by that is, and there are lots of examples of companies, great companies, not just Second Life, that are like this. I would say even something like uh, Twitter actually would probably be a pretty good example of that, right? Because if you had described Twitter in 99 or something, it's not that it wouldn't. It, it's not that you wouldn't find it intriguing. It's just that it would be rather unfundable in the sense that an investor trying to look at it with the perspective of, well, you know, what what practical utility will this serve, or what what thing will it will it replace the telephone? And of course, the answer would be, no, not in any obvious way. Twitter's not going to replace the phone. What will it replace then? Blogging? Well, not exactly. I mean, the nature of how one blogs, or, or right. it, it's, it's not 140 characters. I mean, it, it won't do that either, right? So it's just this giant question mark. W would it have utility? Would people like it? Would it be compelling? Would it be viral? Second Life was just like that. It was this idea that, you know, okay, yeah, some crazy guy named Philip wants to build a digital world, but would anybody want to be there? Will there be any positive utility to it relative to the amount of effort you have to put into getting there? didn't know that. And so that's what I mean by that, that there are projects like that. And those projects you shouldn't undertake unless you're unbelievably passionate about them, <laughs> one. And then two, you should fund them in a very incremental way. I mean, you shouldn't raise a whole ton of money. or well, you're not going to be able to anyways. But you, you, should, you should approach them in a very <laughs> gradiated way. And in fact, when we were competing with there.com at Second Life, um, that was a real element of the difference in our strategies. There had also, there had, also had the good fortune or, or, or bad fortune of starting the company at a time when it was much easier to raise money. Mm -hmm. And so they had raised a huge amount of money around the idea, um, which was, you know, as Second Life shows today, a really big idea. But again, very early, and they'd raised a ton of money. And their investors were saying, you know, where are the revenues? Where are the users? And they said that, our investors said that to us, where are the revenues and the users mm -hmm. early on. But we had only invested, you know, 11 or $12 million, kind of uh, more or less at the point where, I think we had, we had probably invested about $12 million in Second Life that we had, we had spent in, a, you know, mostly our salaries in development, at the point where we felt like it was probably going to work, which was in a, sometime in 2004, probably later in 2004. Um, by the time that the company reached its first quarter of profitability or where it looked like we were about cash flow break even, I think we had spent at that point about $20 million. So to give you an idea, I think $20 million is a huge success to have managed to get people to invest in an idea as far out as something like Second Life. That's really hard to quantify. So I feel proud that we as a company were able to actually even raise $20 million. But as you know, you know, many great ideas entrepreneurially today can raise lots more money than that. But, but what I was trying to say is that those ideas generally fall into this case of their differential competitive ideas. That would be something I was thinking about uh, Jack Dorsey, who I, who I uh, have met and, and know, fantastic entrepreneur, one of the Twitter founders, started SquareUp. Square is an example of something that is a little easier to explain and understand, right? Take credit cards on an iPhone. Very important idea, very obvious in its positive utility, very fundable idea. 
probably going to work. Somebody's going to do it. Maybe it's not Jack. Maybe he doesn't do it quite right. But it's going to be somebody. So if you look at that as an investor, you can really understand the competitive thesis there. But Second Life was just like perhaps like Twitter, mm -hmm. was just in a totally different category. So you, you, you self-funded it when you started it up, right? Right, right. And then how big did it get? How many employees did you have working? Second Today's life? Second Life is about 250 people. And it was about that size when I left as the CEO, uh, like three three years ago now. What's your, how do you recruit talent? How do you build culture? It's a huge team to manage, and you have the idea, right? You, have you managed huge teams like that before? Or? I had not. It was very fun, and I'm still learning. I mean, I, I have no idea. I, I mean, for the most part, I think, especially with these projects that are like Second Life, the proper answer to that is I don't really know. I think that applying some of the traditional strategies for talent acquisition, for getting people to come work with you, when you're working on one of those types of projects, is kind of a, a dicey proposition. I don't think it necessarily works exactly the same way. Um, again, I think when people understand really well what they're working on, and it's a competitive differentiation thing, we're going to have to work 12 hours a day, and we're going to build a better thing than these other, this other company over here, and that's going to you know, generate untold riches for us uh, as a team. That's a different, I think you have a different acquisition and a recruiting strategy. Mm -hmm. And again, then with a project like Second Life, I think that there, we have less human history and knowledge around how you do that. I can only say that for Second Life, people literally just showed up. At your door? Yep. And they were people that were passionate about virtual worlds. They had a particular vision that was not, maybe not so far off of mine that they wouldn't come. And they just would show up and, and sort of say, the time has come for me to be employed here now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> a lot of the greatest people we had at Linden Lab were literally just people who would, I, I can just remember multiples of them that would just sort of come in and say, I've been watching this for a long time and now it's time for me to work here. <laughs> um, so I, I don't think we really knew how to recruit people, but I think the people that were the passionate about that kind of idea just managed to kind of come together as if at a concert or something, you know, just would show up for to see what was going to happen. How did you, I mean, so you had teams, right? You divided things into teams. How did you manage? Mm -hmm. I mean, people showed up. You probably put them through some questions. Well, I think that there's a management. <laughs> I think, yes, yes. Okay. We interviewed people. Okay, good, good, good. We were, we were actually, we were... I think we, were on, we had some good days as interviewers. Okay. We were pretty good. But uh, yes, we did offer conventional employment to people and, and all that. Um, <laughs> although I don't, I don't do that now, or we, we have experimented in very successfully with uh, my new company uh, in not uh, doing conventional employment. And I, we just, there's just an article in Inc. about this, about, about what we've been doing in that sense. And it's very fascinating. So I don't want to laugh too much at that, because I think there is a place that work is going that's different than the way it works today. But yeah, we at Second Life, it was, I would say it was pretty much like what you'd imagine in Silicon Valley or San Francisco. It, you know, people came in and interviewed. But I just think that a lot of times we didn't have to really have, you know, headhunters running around trying to find them. They, they would just show up and say, I'm a specialist in this, or I've been thinking about this all my life, and I want to work on it. Talk more about what you're doing now. What's, what's well, I, I always believe that uh, software development in general 
had, and, and, and taking on Second Life really illustrated this, and let me explain why. Second Life, it turns out, as a software project, just falls into the, not only does it fall into this kind of crazy uncertain idea where you don't really know whether it's going to work or not until you build it, it also falls into another category that's really important, and, and sometimes people get this about Second Life, and sometimes they don't because they're less technical, and so they, don't, they just don't get it. But Second Life falls into the very complicated technology category. <laughs> I see some nod, you know. It, Second Life's like an operating system. I always think there's, you know, there's things that are at the scale of an operating system with all of these little appendages and parts that have to kind of work at the same time. And then there are things that are sort of not that. And I, I don't know about everybody here, but at least me as an engineer, you just kind of know that. You know, you look at a project and you kind of go, well, this is a pretty linear, understandable thing. We need to move this message from here and put it in this database. And then you need to be able to look at it here. And that's pretty, there's, there's a number of different ways to do that. And they're all, you're, you're not going to fail as a company because you failed to build the technology. But something like Second Life, you could potentially fail, or an operating system, or you know, a, 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 any kind of big, complicated, distributed client-server system. You could fail if you didn't develop it the right way. So, so Second Life had that property. As we developed it, I was very struck by the observation that the traditional way that software development and management happened uh, didn't fit very well with the problem that we were trying to solve. We were kind of trying to solve a problem where there were like you know, 50 little moving modules all flying in close formation. And we were trying to manage the company. I mean, t to a certain extent, we were, we were aggressive about trying not to do this. But we certainly went at it, and a lot of the early employees went at it in the traditional way, which is highly planned, a lot of top-down. So the most creative risk-taking and ingenuity was happening at the top, at me. And then you sort of were delegating with less freedom at each level below that. And when you get to the person who's, for example, writing the code or writing a test you know, harness or something like that, they have absolutely no decision control about the nature of the project. I mean, I don't know if that's an adequate summary, but that's kind of been the traditional model that we use as human beings to manage and build things when there's more than one of us involved. And I looked at that, and I looked at what we were doing with Second Life, and I said, this is not the most efficient mechanism here because I'm not delegating freedom of design and decision making kind of rapidly enough through this kind of a, a pyramid. And so we got really interested in what the alternatives were. So you could look at open source, right? And you can say, well, that's an alternative. You have a bunch of people with a kind of a peer interest in a shared asset. And they're all going to basically make changes to it. And there's not really going to be a lot of regulation. They're not making any money doing this. And, and, and kind of everything that everybody does is going to get checked in. So it's going to get lumped into the project. So that, that results in a certain type of software. But it's different than, a, than building it from the top down, right? right. And then so what we did with, our new, with my new company, which is called Love Machine, um, which is taken from one of the cultural tools that we built, the name of a tool that we built inside Linden Lab, when we were trying to kind of manage differently. It's called the Love Machine. And you can look it up and learn it. We can talk about it later. But um, the thing we did with the new company when we started it was to say, we're not going to hire anybody to do engineering in a conventional salaried way. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to try to build a system that's kind of a hybrid between something like Elance, like a contracting system, and something that's more like an open source project. And we're going to actually build a new piece of software and a management strategy that falls in, in between. So what does, what does that mean? 
It means we're gonna, we are going to essentially break our project up into a whole bunch of little contracted pieces that are much smaller, and this is what we use the technology for, that are much smaller than the traditional contract you might come and do for a company. So if you're working as a contractor on a site like Elance as a developer, you might do a project or be part of a small team that works on a project that's like $10,000 of work over a couple months. Indeed, I think the average contract size on most of these freelancing sites is about $5,000. So what we said was, what if we use technology to make it so easy to negotiate with get paid, check in, do your code review. What if we use technology to make that so easy that the average contract size would drop down to like $200 and just a few hours of your work? What if we made it possible for you as a new developer, I, I say new, as a person who'd never seen our code before, to come and help us rewrite a login screen using, say, your lunchtime over a few days and then we would just pay you with PayPal as soon as you were done. But we would use the kind of open source strategies that people have traditionally used to drive quality. So for example, we would have you do your work in a shared code sandbox where a lot of other people could see what you were doing all the time. So we could entrust you to be pretty aggressive about what you were doing, even as a newbie to our environment, but a lot of other people could see what you were doing and tell you if you were screwing something up. The other thing was, what if we pay somebody else who you don't know a little bit of money to review the code that you're about to check in? If we trust that both of you want to continue to be employed by us and do stuff, can't we just trust you to review each other's work product? Do I even need to look at the code that you're writing as, the, say, the, the founder, if I can get that to happen in a distributed way? No. So we built that system, and it's this thing we call the work list. And it's what we've used to do about it's probably about 500,000, about half a million dollars of software work at an average contract size of about $160 over the last year. And what I'll tell you um, is that at least for certain types of projects, more kind of ground up prototyping, let's see this work and play with it quickly, I would defend that our speed, quality, fun, uh, uh, cost per screen of new code is uh, strikingly better than the traditional approach. Even, even now that's even putting us up against the uh, three people in a garage. I'll take them on any time. We'll, we'll wipe them out. Because we can call on, where, where you start with a project, three people in a garage, they better have all the competencies you need. Because those three people are gonna sit down. What if you wanna do SMS and nobody knows anything about SMS on that team of three? Well, you're done because that team of three already split up the equity of the company, had that tough conversation about who got what, and they are now stuck. That they, they, they and their egos are now stuck in a room trying to build whatever it was they were going to. They said they were going to do. Yeah. I can do that in a quarter, a fifth of the time, using 25 people who are doing it in their part time. We, we always joke about the expression like, uh, "Lots of little parts of more people." You know, it's almost like that's what we're, I don't know if there's a brand there, you know, but it's like what we're trying to build is a company where we're little chunks of people <laughs> rather than whole people in the way that you would, you that know, traditionally approach it. everything we've ever believed in because usually, you know, you get your tech guy, your developer, and you got to kind of like marry him and just, you're going to be, <laughs> you're going to be, it's you and him together, you're developing this thing, and yep. if you start hiring a whole bunch of other developers that, 
the lines of code, it's just going to be hard to keep up, and everybody has their own style of coding, yep. and that's it's right. going to be just a big mess, and people... So how much, it's exactly the right question, right? So a piece of software, a piece of sophisticated, uh, a substantial piece of software built in the manner I just described, how does it compare in terms of, say, code quality and architecture to something that was done in the conventional way? Now, I'll be the first to tell you, and, you're, and don't believe me, go to the work list because as I described, all of these projects, including the stuff we're working on right now, including a new project that's kind of a secret project that we're getting ready to launch, they were all built, they're all in an open code base, so you can actually look at the code. And in fact, I would, especially with a room like this, I would very much invite uh, communication afterwards to give me your assessment of what you actually, I would love to have anybody here that wanted to look at that code and tell me what they thought about it. So is it as high a quality of code as you'd do if you designed it all yourself from the top down? Of course not. It's heterogeneous. It looks, it looks more like an open source project or even a more distributed thing than you know, a traditional open source project, which in some cases has a high you know, degree of sort of architectural you know, right. you know, leadership of it. So no, the code quality is not as good. But the question I ask you is, are the benefits worth the costs? In other words, is it less scalable, though, the solution that gets built with these people reviewing each other's code? In other words, w you know, will it scale to a million users worse than that, 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 that other uh, top-down architected thing? Uh, I'd, I'd tell you to take a look and see for yourself. So what, what I think is, yes, there are these sorts of problems that we are naturally afraid of as designers and leaders. But surprisingly, um, those problems aren't that big compared to the tremendous advantages and speed that you get. You can go back and using the same contract method, and we do this, we write tests that are these little contracts. We write, uh, we rewrite the code. We refactor things to improve code quality using the same strategy. So you can use this same kind of very rapid fire, small pieces strategy mm -hmm. to do all the quality improvements. I think there is one thing that is still true, which is you've got to have great pe people with the right architectural sensibility writing these little contracts. So I'm the person, my partner Ryan, uh, my other co-founder Fred, the, the three of us, uh, Ryan and I in particular, o over the longest period of time, have written all these little contracts. You've got to have a sensibility for what you want to get out. It's that garbage in, garbage out type of thing. If you just had no engineering skills and you were writing these little contracts, and what you were building was highly sensitive to being architected the right way, like if you tried to build Twitter, go back to Twitter, which we all know and you know, know as engineers. If you tried to build Twitter in this way and you had no ideas about y y you weren't engaging or, or, or dictating at all in these contracts, how you wanted the architecture to be done, you'd be, in, you'd be in trouble. But how much of my time and how much of my skill has it taken to kind of maintain a reasonable architecture with the stuff that we've built? It's really not that hard. So I mean, most of, of these projects don't take that much architecture. Instead of putting something like, I want a site that sells bunnies with a share button on it and sending it out as a contract, you put something like, I want a form that is validated That's exactly for the button. Right. Yeah, the first contract on the Love Machine, which was this commercial app we built that was the thing that we had orig originated inside Linden Lab, was a contract I wrote where I said, I want a form that, that posts to a database with the following, in MySQL, with the following you know, rough schema. Give me back this form. And somebody did that for me in a couple hours. And I had that. And then we just built the whole thing on top of that. We've done everything like that. It's exactly what you said. 
Start with a login page. Start with a settings page. Get the, get the, get the home screen up as a framework that just has a skeletal uh, data display that's live, you know. And then, and then deploy it and have everybody that's working on it just sitting there using it. You know, that's the other thing. I'm not a big believer in multiple staging systems because you want to have everybody literally just sitting there in the product. The, the other key thing we built, which is part of the work list, if you go check it out, is this thing called the journal, which is basically IRC. It's a very capable uh, live chat environment that's constantly telling everybody that's sitting in the chat environment what builds are happening, who's working on what, uh, when people get paid. There's all kinds of, if we had hours, I could talk about all the psychological motivations of this stuff. We have a bonus system where I can kind of anonymously give you a bonus as a developer, and it literally says, Philip received a $100 bonus in this chat system. So you see that pop up. Everybody else can see that. So there's all kinds of fascinating things you can do if you bring the transparency up, put everybody together in a shared space, and then break the project up into very small pieces. Cool. Let's, uh, let's open it up. We have about, what, 10 minutes to uh, questions from you guys. I'm sure you guys. Well, what okay. kind of, uh, what did you, what was, what was built <coughs> in this system? What, did you build the work list itself? Yes. So the work list itself was built using this system. We built the Love Machine, which is an internal messaging system for companies. It's kind of a multi-tenant infrastructure on EC2 uh, that, that were, uh, where you essentially deploy an instance of this messaging system where you can send each other these short messages of recognition inside a company. And we, you, you get things like tools like word clouds that show you what everybody's saying about each other in your company. Very, very interesting stuff like that. That was an app. The work list itself, which has SMS, payment systems built into it, um, uh, all kinds of interesting search uh, and form displays on it. Um, we built a, uh, uh, we've built several iPhone apps using this approach. We're currently using Titanium as a framework for uh, uh, doing the iPhone apps, iPhone and Android apps. Um, we've built a few kind of back-end uh, like we built our own word cloud at one point because we wanted a word cloud tool that did 2D physics. And we, we've been able to build a lot of different things with it. Again, I said we spent about a half million dollars in development time. We've spent that money on probably about 120 different developers around the world, developers, testers, program managers. We do program management um, in, a lot of the sim in a very similar way. So you can literally have somebody who's looking after the, the, the contracts that I'm writing um, we have a person, uh, or I mean, we have one primary person, given our scale, that does this, who's checking. Uh, he, he's in Belgium, and he's literally constantly doing the program management. You know, with, did this check in? Did it match the spec that Philip wrote? Uh, does it work? Uh, you know, did the final commit actually get pushed, and does it look right? Um, again, all that stuff, he literally does that, and then adds a fee, which everybody else in our community can see him add, to the, the project that's saying, pay me. This is what you owe me for that work. So he's regulating. This idea of people regulating their own pay in a kind of a shared environment where everybody can see what everybody else is making is very, very interesting as a different model for managing people's uh, behavior, basically. Yes? Um, so do people bid on these contracts, or do you have to yeah. accept not employees, accept people that you're always working with? Both. So as a developer, if I put a project in that might say something like, uh, I just did this, uh, you know, send a message when a new user signs up to our chat system so everybody in the system can see that a new user signed up. So I'll write a contract like that that was basically a couple paragraphs of that description. 
you get bids on it. I get SMSs telling me literally while I'm driving down here telling me what the bids are. And then I accept one of those bids based on my assessment of obviously cost, but also is, is it the right developer for the job. If it's somebody new, I might ask myself, is this really hard? Like if you're brand new, are you going to get into it and just get chewed up by how difficult a project it is? Um, on things like program management, uh, uh, code review, those things are fees that we just ask people to just be wise. And that's, that's where we take advantage of the fact that everybody can see what everybody else is doing. And we just say, just add a fee that you think is appropriate for your time to this. But know that everybody can see this. And obviously, if you're not adding fees in a way that's sane, we're not going to keep calling on you to do that work. <coughs> but you're right. In, in, I mean, we, we do both things. We just trust people to pick the numbers. So how much visibility do you give folks, whether they're engineering or program management, into the, the components they're going to be working on? What I mean by that is like someone goes to uh, Linden Lab team and says, OK, this is the component I'm going to work on. For a new entrepreneur who's starting mybunnystore.com, right, how, do you, how do you compel and attract talent to work on those specific components if you're, if you're trying to adhere to this kind of model? Right? If you're standing up your, your kind of new, hot, sexy thing. Yep. It's easier for more established, more renowned projects, right? So what would you say to folks who are trying to do the same Well, I think the appeal, and I'm not sure, let me try and answer that and see if I'm answering it right. The appeal of this kind of a granular uh, contract type development system, really, it doesn't really matter what kind of project you're working on. The appeal is it's really easy to get in, do something as a developer, get paid for it, like code reviews. I mean, anybody here that's a developer that, or that, that's under the right conditions, you feel like coming and doing code reviews for us, please do. It's a great way to make extra money. We, we pay you with PayPal every time each one of these little jobs is complete, which is you know, a bunch of times a day that they roll through. So I think the appeal of it is, is also just functional in that it's easy to do. Yeah, and, and I'm not really worried, actually, about uh, recruiting people. But, 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 I, but I do think, I do, and I, I hope this is maybe answering this a little bit, I do think the other thing that happens that's really healthy is you see people move around their efforts according to whether something really is useful or good. You know what I mean? Like a lot of times you'll put a feature idea in and <laughs> nobody bids on it. And in part it's because as we are, we are all communal animals. And when, you f when you're a part of a project like this, regardless of whether you have stock options or how you're paid or whatever, you know, you feel a sense of, of ownership and of, of protection. and. And, and nurturing of the thing you're building. And so it's really interesting. Like a, a lot of times I've been so humbled as a designer, right? And designers need humbling, right? That I'll, I'll write some feature idea, right? And it's just no bids. <laughs> Crickets. <laughs> like two days will go by. And I'm just like, I'll just turn to my partners and be like, well, I think we know about that, that idea now. Whereas in a conventional organization, that sucker would get built, and it would suck, you know, and, and nobody would use it, you know? Yeah. Um, what about, this is all very focused on engineering. I'm more of a community manager, people-first communicator. What do you do with people like me? Do you have them on your team? Like, We've run contracts around things like uh, communicate with new users that are coming in. I think it's pretty amenable to that. I mean, whenever you've got a, a well-described task and a well-described expected outcome, I'd like you to talk to the last 10 people that signed up for the love machine and see how they're doing. You can write a contract around that. Um, it works. I, I don't think that we have as much road time as much test experience with that. I'm always respectful of there are a lot of different pieces of a real business. And I'm not 
certain that every one of them can be automated necessarily using an approach like the work list. But I do think that things like that can actually. I do think the customer support, community management, uh, different types of outreach, evangelism, and sales can be managed with this type of a system. I don't necessarily believe that everything can. Like I said, I don't, I don't think that vision is crowdsourced in most cases. Th there can be aspects of it that are, but you still, you still have great leaders. In a way, systems like this that are more market-based are harder core, make, make, it, uh, make it more obvious who the real leaders are. <laughs> Right, and, and that's, I think you were mentioning that in the write-up to this, that I was also very passionate about teasing out what the aspects of real leadership are and then measuring them, um, rather than having most of leadership be management, be, be, be sort of human performance management, which again, has its place, but I don't think we need to do as much of it nowadays as we used to need to do. We all like our jobs a little more. There are many, many wonderful, transparent ways of assessing performance that we should avail ourselves of as, as business operators. And then once you take away some of those management process stuff that you used to be doing, you then get to ask the question, well, like, are you an effective leader? And I think that is a very important question and one that should be, <laughs> that the leaders of organizations should be scrutinized in the same means that these sort of transparent uh, uh, you know, peer review and payment mechanisms should be. We'll do one more, and then have one, and then people can but questions right. after. Yeah, so actually it's a two-part question. The first one's really simple. I'm wondering um, how you're handling taxation for the payments you're doing, like you're saying, 1099s out. And yeah, then we the are. second kind of like bigger question is, I appreciate, Phil, how like you've been more descriptive than prescriptive so far, and I, I think I hear in that like humility, but um, if we push you to give us some advice based on your experience, you know, um, would, would you push people doing new ventures right now to do the same kinds of things you're doing um, across the board, or if not, you know, like what would you what would you say we should think about as we evaluate whether to do some of these techniques? So the the, answer, the simple answer to the first question is yes, we do 1099 people, um, so we keep track of that and we kind of do it. Uh, that's obviously an ongoing, interesting question as to what the right treatment is and all that. But yeah, as it stands today, if you pay somebody a couple thousand dollars, you need to report it. Um, the second issue, uh, what's my advice to people? I think that it's possible to reduce the cost of developing ideas and increase the speed, enjoyment, empowerment associated with it significantly enough that I would, I would, I would suggest that people that are thinking about uh, kind of early stage new ideas in potentially competitive sort of fast moving environments to at least think about these strategies because I think what these strategies do is they, they really just reduce risk. Like I was saying, the, the, the Cricket's experience of having nobody bid on something, that's a great risk reduction for us as a company, for me to get that feedback that quickly. And that's going to translate into a competitive advantage if I'm going up against somebody else's team and I'm trying to build, like I am right now in several different ways, a new product and I'm up against another team. I think we'll win because we'll just move so much faster because we have such, we're so agile and we have such lower ego. You know, we just have to back out of stuff that's the wrong direction. So I, I guess it's like, it, yeah, I, so, so again, I think if you're doing something novel, you're kind of starting from zero lines of code. And of course, I, I can't help but do this a bit as a salesperson because as, as an inventor of this type of process, I really want to see it work with other projects. And one of the things we're doing, and I, again, absolutely welcome participation and involvement here from people, is I'm, I'm especially with a, a group of designers and engineers like this, we're, we're wanting to run, we're just starting to run other projects in this system and we'd love to have you and your projects come to us and, or come to me and we'll give it a try. 
Um, so if you're, what I would say is if somebody is contemplating doing something where they're basically starting from scratch right now and they're going to design an idea from the ground up, boy, come and talk to me because this kind of an approach is fascinating. Whether you build your own system that does what we do or you use our software, I don't care. I'm more interested in continued validation that this kind of an approach to product building is going to be better in the future. Let's thank Phil for coming out for a long time.